As we go through life, we're trying to achieve a level of status with other people. We're trying to feel like we're good enough. We're trying to feel like we're valuable people. We all have this kind of bar that we're trying to meet. And the question is, where is that bar? How high is it? Who sets it? Well, the bar is all around us. The culture sets the bar. Television sets the bar. Social media sets the bar. Taylor Swift sets the bar. Love Island sets the bar. Like we're surrounded by ideal selves, these heroic figures. And so subconsciously, that's giving us this repeated message. This is what good enough looks like. This is what good enough looks like. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing this great rise in negative mental health Hey guys, how you doing? Hope you're having a good week so far. My name is Dr. Rongan Chatterjee, and this is my podcast, Feel Better, Live More. When you think of the word status, what comes up for you? I think for most of us, it probably brings up ideas of wealth, celebrity, or material possessions. But could it be something much more meaningful and central to who we are as humans? Well, my guest this week puts forward the idea that status is simply about being of value and it underpins so much of what we choose to do in life, impacting the way that we feel, but also having significant implications for our health. Will Store is an award-winning journalist whose writings have appeared in The Guardian, The Sunday Times, The New Yorker and The New York Times. He's also the author of six critically acclaimed books, including Selfie, the science of storytelling, and his latest book, The Status Game, which is all about our social position and how we use it. In our conversation, Will argues that as humans, we're programmed to compare ourselves to others and to care about how we stack up. He explains that status is actually our social standing based upon how valuable we are to those around us. Will also shares the three types of status game we all play. Basically, the three ways in which we try to be of value to those around us. And I'm pretty sure that throughout this conversation, you're going to start to identify which of those status games you have previously played and which ones you are currently playing in your own life. We also discuss the relationship between status and health the link between growing rates of perfectionism and rising rates of mental health problems like anxiety, depression, self-harm, and eating disorders. And Will also talks about the importance of having multiple sources of status and how becoming aware of this led to him becoming a volunteer for Samaritans, something which has enhanced his life immeasurably. Ultimately, Will explains that we are not meant to win the status game, just to play it. And he makes the powerful case that simply knowing this fact can make life feel a lot easier. This really is a wonderful and thought-provoking conversation and one that I'm hopeful will have you reflecting on your own life and viewing it through a different lens. Will is a wonderful human being and a truly fantastic writer. I hope you enjoy listening. Now, before we get started, a quick reminder that you can now listen to each episode of my podcast without any sponsor reads at all. It's only $3.99 per month, which I think is incredible value, under £1 per week. And it's a wonderful way to support the show and all the behind-the-scenes work that goes on to bringing you these powerful conversations. You can also get a 16% discount, 12 months for the price of 10 which works out at $39.99 
if you pay upfront for the whole year. All you have to do is click on the link in the episode notes in your podcast app. And just to be really clear, this podcast will continue to be free of charge each week for everyone. This subscription option is simply for those of you who would like to support the show and listen to ad-free episodes. And on the subject of sponsors, today's episode is brought to you by Calm. Now, Calm is a mental wellness app that can help you stress less, sleep more, and live a happier, healthier life. On the Calm app, you will find guided meditations, sleep stories, relaxing music tracks, and daily movement sessions that have all been designed to give you the tools that you need to improve the way that you feel. Now, there's over 100 million people now around the world who use Calm. And even if you have never meditated before, you honestly will get all the support that you need. Now, for me, I actually meditate most mornings now without using any apps, but it took me many years to get myself to this place. Along the way, I did use an app to help me learn the basics. And the app that I used was Calm. In fact, I will still often use a meditation from the Calm app midway through the afternoon to help me if I want to take a break or switch off for a bit and recharge. Now, if you go to calm.com forward slash live more, you will get a special offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription and new content is added every week. All you have to do is go to calm.com forward slash live more for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com forward slash live more. And now, my conversation with Will Storr. When we think about our health, we don't really think about perfectionism. Mm. And in your latest book, The Status Game, you, you make the powerful case that social perfectionism and materialistic goal-seeking is linked to all kinds of problems, including depression, anxiety, eating disorders, self-harm, and suicidal thinking. Mm. What's going on? Well, you know, as we go through life, we're trying to achieve a, a, a level of status, you know, with, with other people. And so we're trying to feel like we're, you know, good enough. Uh, we're trying to feel like we're valuable people. And so we all have this kind of bar that we're trying to meet. And the question is kind of, where is that bar? Like, how high is it? Who sets it? And, you know, what I've argued in the status game in, in the previous book, um, Selfie, is that, that we live in a culture where the bar is unreasonably highly raised. And I think that's, you know, one of the reasons why we're seeing this great kind of rise in negative mental health problems that people are having. Perfectionism appears to be on the rise. There's a lot of research now supporting, I think, the ideas that you first put forward in Selfie quite a few years ago mm. now. Is perfectionism on the rise? And why is it on the rise? Yes, the perfectionism is on the rise. You know, there was a major study um, by British psychologists that, that, that looked at 40,000 people in the UK, the US and Canada and found a really significant increase in perfectionism since the 1990s. And so it is on the rise and it is, you know, it's a serious issue because as you say, it's linked to self-harm, eating disorders, suicidal thinking, you know, depression, anxiety, you name it. And, and so what perfectionism is, is a sensitivity to failure in your environment. 
so when we're made to feel over and over again, like we failed somehow, like we're, we're too low in status, we're not good enough. Um, that's, that, that's what it feels like to be a perfectionist because you sort of, you know, you're, you're pushing yourself forward all the time, trying to be, to become more and more perfect. So is it this idea that we are constantly less than? So we've all got an internal ideal inside our heads. We, we've all got these stories about who we are, who we think we are, who we think we should become. Mm. And are you really saying that actually, if that bar is set too high, then no matter what you do, you will never meet that bar. And so the problem is you always feel inferior and that's why we get stressed out on our mental health suffers. Yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And so, 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 you know, as I say, who sets the bar? Where is the bar? Well, the bar is all around us. The culture sets the bar. Television sets the bar. Social media sets the bar. Taylor Swift sets the bar. You know, <laughs> Love Island sets the bar. Like we're surrounded by um, um, ideal selves. We're surrounded by these heroic figures. And so subconsciously, that's giving us this repeated message. This is what good enough looks like. This is what good enough looks like. And so that's stressful, especially for young people, especially for people who are kind of much more sensitive to those kinds of signals. So, so, so yeah, I think, you know, that's why we're seeing this rise in perfectionism. And also, you know, li life in general is getting harder. You've got to think about the economy too, um, and how the economy is almost kind of turned against millennials and people in the you know, Gen Z, Gen Z um, generation. It's harder than ever to feel good enough in, in an economic sense. It's harder than ever to be able to get on a property ladder. Um, the millennials are the first generation in history to be less wealthy than their parents. Even if you go to university, um, in this country, in Canada, in America, there's no guarantee anymore of having a successful career. There's huge underemployment of graduates. So for all these reasons, people are feeling, especially young people are feeling, that they're not good enough anymore. You know, there's a, there's a level of status which they should be achieving and they're not achieving it. And that's painful. What's changed, Will? Because you say young people mm. are maybe exquisitely sensitive yeah. now to the perfectionist ideal that's been portrayed to them. And it's obvious mm. to put all the blame on social media, for example, yeah. and I'm sure we're going to get into that. Mm. But if we just zoom out for a minute, like I'm in my mid-40s, what was different when I grew up compared to how people are growing up now. You know, what I'm trying to get at is why yeah. is perfectionism actually going up? Because yeah. I would have seen as a kid, I mean, top of my head, you would have watched Top Gun and seen Tom Cruise with a, an amazing body playing volleyball on the beach. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, as a, as a young yeah. impressionable boy, you're like, oh my God, that's what a man is. Yeah. Right? That's what a successful yeah, achieving yeah. man yeah, is, right? Yeah. So. Why has it changed? Because it was always there, wasn't it? Well, yeah. So, so, so I'm going to introduce a, like a jargony word, <laughs> and the jargony word is neoliberalism. So, like, it, like it's a, like it's a it's a scary word, but I'm just going to sort of unpack what that means. I think it's really important that we understand what neoliberalism is, and because it kind of defines our era. So, so, so neoliberalism is this economic theory that was embraced by Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan at the end of the 70s and into the and into the early 80s. And what they decided to do was to you know because the economies of the West were going wrong. Right. So, so they had to think of a new way of running, the, running our countries economically. And the idea was we're going to like ramp up individualism. We're going to ramp up kind of competition. We're going to ramp, we're going to sort of get rid of all these kind of collective ideas like um, unionization, um, you know, regulations on banking and business, um, 
even things like council houses, like anything that was that, that was that has this sense of everybody's looking after everybody else is going to get rid of all that stuff and force people to become super competitive. And what's amazing about that is it is it worked. They did that, and, and this really sinister phrase that um, Margaret Thatcher used when she was interviewed by the Sunday Times when she was first became prime minister, she was asked about what well, you know what are you doing, what what is this big master plan you've got. And she said, well, the, the project is economic, but the object is to change the soul. And that's really sinister because that's what happened. She changed the soul of us in the West. And so what, what, what happens when you change the rules of the game of life is that we change in lockstep. So what you see in the 1980s, beginning in the 1980s, is, that, is, is we all become neoliberals. In other words, we all become super competitive, super individualistic. So think about 1980s culture versus 1960s culture. Like 1960s culture is hippies, it's collective, it's anti-materialistic, it's screw the man. What's 1980s culture? It's keep fit, it's cocaine, it's greed is good. You know, that, that's how we changed. So, so, so I think that, that was our, you know, I'm, I'm in my kind of late 40s. So that was our childhood, the 80s and the 90s. So Top Gun, you know, Tom Cruise's character in Top Gun is very different to a hero that you might find in a 60s or a 70s movie. It's an action hero. And so that, that's kind of mm. a new thing in the 1980s. That's a neoliberal idea. Um, so, um, so, so, so I think that's the first thing to understand, that we, that we, are, we are by design of governments living in a super competitive environment. And the other thing to understand is that is that's never ended. And in fact, we, we, what's happened in our life is we've become more and more and more individualistic, more and more and more competitive. So you bring up the example of Tom Cruise. Yeah, we I saw Top Gun when I was a kid and that was a, that, that was a hero to look up to. But what I'd ask you is, what do male superheroes look like now? They don't look like Tom Cruise did in Top Gun. They are out here. They have bodies which are impossible for any mortal to get. Like they, they have become even more, in inverted commas, perfect. The bar, like if you were, if, if you were the best, like I, I went to, I was at school with a guy called Nick Moore. He, he, he was a good looking boy. He looks a bit like mm. Tom Cruise. And you know, like, but, but nobody at school looked like a Marvel superhero. They're unbelievably, they're almost CGI. They're so beautiful. But, and that's, that's difficult. Like if you think about male body image, um, you know, like Love Island, for example, the, the young men on Love Island, I mean, they're beautiful. Their bodies are incredible. They're insane. No one looked like that when we were kids in the 80s and 90s. Like no young person looked like that. So that's an example of how in our lifetime, the bar for what's good enough, the bar for what is high status or sufficient status has raised to kind of sometimes crazy levels. I mean, it's so powerful, Will, hearing about that because it I mean, we're going to hopefully get to optimistic notes in this conversation. But if you just sort of take a step back and look at the scene, I mean, there's a couple of things came up for me as you were saying that. Mm. Um, I really like Dr. Gabor Mate, who's been on this podcast several times. And in Gabor's latest book, he kind of makes the case very well that we are products of our environment. Right, he's. He, I think he says something like, you know, if you were, if you were in a lab, for example, and you had a cell in a petri dish, and it wasn't thriving, you wouldn't think there was a problem with the cell. You would understand that there's a, there's a problem with the culture. There's yeah. a problem with the petri dish, the environment in which it's in. Let's move the cell into a different environment yeah. to allow it to thrive. And so, if we look at society, and as a medical doctor, this is of huge interest to me. And we've never covered really perfectionism on this podcast before, which is one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you, Will, is mm. because if the culture is setting 
our expectation of what is okay, of what is normal, mm. and if that expectation is unrealistic for many of us, for most of us, no wonder rates of stress and anxiety mm. and depression and eating disorders and you know keep the list going are on the mm. rise because mm. we're constantly feeling like we're not enough. We are less than. We're not meeting what we should be meeting. So it's really, really problematic, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, 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 and the way I think about it is if you think about it in its most simple terms, and, and this is to me in its most simple terms, and is that 99% of people in the UK and Canada and the US, they've got housing, they've got food, they're safe, they're not going to get killed. You know, like most of us, we're fine. And so why aren't we happy? You know, like if you think about it rationally, it's insane that 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 most of us very often feel less than, feel not good enough, feel like we're not we're not achieving enough. When most of us are looking after our kids perfectly well, are feeding ourselves perfectly well, are not at risk of homelessness or you know violent attack. Um, you know why is that? And and as you say, it's because our culture is is setting the bar. Our our social environment, our economic environment is setting the bar for. Um, what is good enough. And, and, you know, the bar is too high. You know, the bar is crazy high. In Selfie, you talk about the different types of perfectionism. One of them is social perfectionism. I found this really interesting, particularly in that section. I think it's in the first chapter, Will, where you talk about suicide mm. and the link between that and social perfectionism. So I wonder if you could just speak to that. What is social perfectionism and how does it relate to suicide? Yeah, so when most people think about perfectionism, they think about what's called self-directed perfectionism, which is um, I've got my idea of what's um, good enough and what's acceptable and what's enough status and I'm not meeting it, so I feel bad. I want to push myself further. But social perfectionism is, is even more toxic than that because social perfectionism is um, it's not self-directed, it's other-directed. It's like... Um, other people have these expectations of me and I'm not meeting those expectations. So, it, so it's very rooted in identity. So, it's, so for example, it's this idea of what, what, what does it mean to be a good enough father? Well, in, in these people's eyes, I'm not a good enough father. In these people's eyes, I'm not a good enough, you know, whatever my job is. In these people's eyes, I'm too fat, I'm too bald, I'm too whatever it is. So, so, so you know, it's toxic because it's, it, it's rooted in, in our imaginations of what other people are thinking about us. Which may not even be true. Exactly. And often it isn't. I mean, we all know what it feels like to spiral and have these kind of neurotic thoughts about what other people are thinking. And social perfectionism is, is especially linked to suicide and suicidal ideation. And, you know, when I was researching Selfie, I spoke to a, a world expert in suicidal psychology, which is Dr. Rory O'Connor, you know, a, a, an amazing guy up in the University of Glasgow. We were talking about, because I think it's quite well known that suicide mostly affects men, like, like in the UK, in, in, in English-speaking countries, around 80% of, of people who kill themselves are men. And the, you know, the, the, kind, of, the, the kind of pat response to that is that, you know, men are more violent and all that stuff. And I'm, I'm sure there's, there's truth to all that stuff. But it, that's not the whole answer by a long way. And so, you know, uh, there's this idea that social perfectionism impacts men in a particular way. And that's because um, of this idea of masculinity that we have. And, and, the, and that masculinity, being a man, is something that is not, it's not something that you get automatically just by having a certain kind of, you know, certain, certain stuff between your legs. It's something that you earn. It's a cultural idea. 
So there was a very interesting study that I talk about in Selfie where they asked people, men and women, what does it mean to be a man? And the list was insane. You've got to be a protector. You've got to be a provider. You've got to show mastery and control at all times. But you've also got to be vulnerable and, you know, all, all this stuff. So when you look at the list, it's like, God, that's a crazy list. Like, how can we, you know, and I think this is why um, suicide especially impacts middle-aged men, because it's in middle age that we feel like, you know, success becomes a bit more of a struggle in middle age. Our bodies change. We might um, st- we might kind of find our, our careers stalling or even collapsing. So so suddenly it's the idea of well I'm you know I'm, I'm a bad father because I've lost my job and, and I'm a bad husband. And so there's this kind of um, link between social perfectionism and, and and the very state of being a man. How do you think this mythical idea of the perfect man affects you? That is a good question. Well, I mean, I think it does affect me. Yeah, I mean, I think it does. I mean, you know, it's um, even at 48, I'm very aware of body image issues. I'm always trying to lose weight. Um, you know, I'm, I'm I'm aware of the baldingness, you know, <laughs> I've just had this lump lasered off my eye, you know. So, 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 so yeah, like um, y- 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 you'd think you'd get to a certain age and even a certain level of status perhaps where you could stop worrying about that stuff. Um, but you don't. And, 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 that, and I think that partly is because, you know, in the status game, I write about this concept in neuroscience, what they call it the status detection system, that the brain has got this always on bit of evil technology called the status detection system. And it means that we're constantly, unconsciously um, looking for signals of status in our environment and where we sit in that up and down thing. And, you know, weight, whether we like it or not, um, you know, body, the way our bodies look, um, how attractive we are is a status game. Well, I'd say in the West, probably all over the world. Um, but probably, I, 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 I expect more so in the West. Um, 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 it's, it's so, so, so it's this, you know, it's, it's this game that you can't help playing in a way. Yeah. You said just before we started recording that you've started weightlifting. Yeah. Is that for your health or is it to meet this ideal of the mythical man? It's 100% to meet this ideal of the mythical man. Like, I know it's good for me. Like, I know, like, sarcopenia, like, as you get old, you lose muscle mass. And I'll be, but I would love to sit here and say to you, oh, it's because it's, but it isn't. It's because, it's because of the aesthetic, you know. I, I remember the moment I was with my wife in in Australia and, I, and, I'd, and I'd, um, I'd been at a literary festival and somebody had sent me pictures of me on the stage in the literary festival and you could see my belly pic- poking out of my shirt. And I was like, oh God, I look awful. And we were walking along, we we're doing the walk from Bondi Beach to, uh, to, 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 to uh, it, 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 I can't remember what the walk's called, but we were walking from Bondi Beach. And I, you know, and I, I saw this guy, who's a middle-aged guy and he looked, he had pecs. And I was like, and I remember thinking, I want that. I really want that. And then and I, and I was like, and I, I promised that when I get home, I'm going to get buy some weights and I'm going to start. So I did. And I've been, do, that's, that's been doing it for you. I know it, it doesn't show, but I was starting off from a very, <laughs> from a very low base. I was very, I've always been very, really like skinny. And yeah. You know, most things in life, Will, there's, there's upsides and downsides. So when you were talking about perfectionism, I think you started off talking about self-directed perfectionism. Yeah. So, you know, as you were talking about that, it made me think, well, that can be a good thing up to a point, I presume, i.e., um, I want to get better yeah. at this particular skill. Mm. Oh, 
I can see that person who's really good at that skill. I'm going to look up to that person, yeah. learn from them and try and improve myself. Mm. So at what point does this start to become toxic? Because mm. looking up to people, um, having people to aspire to, it's not necessarily all bad, is it? No, no, that's a good thing. I, 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 but I think when psychologists talk about perfectionism, they're, they're talking about when it becomes damaging, when it starts leading to, you know, anxiety, depression, suicide ideation, self-harm, mm. disorder, all that stuff. But but that's, but it, well, what you say is exactly right. That's how we're wired to um, learn. That That's how we're wired to play status games. That's, that, and, and that is positive. So, so, so we have these ways of subconsciously identifying people to look up to. Um, and 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 we 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 have this urge to get near to them because we want to learn from them, and we do. We, we like in the book I call it the you know copy conform, copy flatter conform kind of instinct. That's what mm. we that's what we do naturally to high status people, um, and you know that's why um, high status people are treated so well. It's like um, it's like a bribe to persuade them to let us be near them, and we want to be near. The brain wants to be near them because it wants us to learn from them, and that, that's why you know we we over copy often. Mm. So if you like, I always remember, you know, when I was a, when I was nine years old, my, the, my first idol was Nick Kershaw, the singer Nick Kershaw. And I remember being very conscious of like, because I saw him on TVAM being interviewed and I watched it on video loads of times. And his particular way of sitting where he'd cross his legs and he'd have, with his ankle on his knee. And I remember being at school and I was, I started sitting like that. And I remember thinking, I quite like that I'm sitting like Nick Kershaw, but also isn't it weird that I'm sitting like Nick Kershaw? And that's the, that, that's natural. That's what, that that's what we're designed we to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's again, it's it's like everything. It's not good or bad. It's just in what context, yeah. to what point do you go? How far do you go yeah. with this? Well, I'd argue that it's good mostly, because because it, it is how we learn. Like, like it's good that we identify successful people and try to become successful ourselves. That's how we develop as we progress where, where, where it becomes toxic is, is where the where the bar for what we consider successful um becomes too high i think the way to understand it is to think about about our evolutionary history so all this cognition all this wiring that that makes this you know copy flatter conform and interested in becoming good enough you know as you know it all comes from the hunter-gatherer kind of era that that very long period in which our brains were evolving and we were becoming human and so in the tribal context, there wouldn't have been that many people who were high status in the group. And, and, and what surprised me when I was doing the research into the status game is that because we live in this world full of leaders and full of very high status people, in the groups in which we evolved, there was very rarely like a big man, like leader figure. It was mostly um, leadership was done by con consensus and when particular decisions were made. Uh, like a, like a, a senior council would come together and discuss, and, and they would try and form consensus. So, so you know, so, so that was that, that's how we evolve. That's how we're kind of in, in a vertical we're supposed to you know beh behave. So, in those groups, you know, who who were the high status people we were measuring ourselves against? Well, there weren't that many of them because it was just you know it was mm. it was a relatively small group of people, and, and it was divided by gender. So, men would tend to mimic you know mimic men and women would tend to mimic women. And it was even, we would have even been sort of divided in terms of age, you know, like you tend to mimic people who are closer to you in age. So the bar wasn't massively high because we're not living cheek by jowl with Taylor Swift and Barack Obama and, mm. you know, and, and Serena Williams and all these incredibly impressive people. We would never have come into contact with, 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 with a level of perfection that insanely high. But today... We come into contact with that, with with, with, that, with, with those kind of levels of perfection, 
multiple times a day. Yeah, I, th I think a key point there for me, Will, is we can know with our rational brains that when I go online, people are presenting yeah. the best side of them yeah. themselves. They're not presenting the dirty laundry or the dishes that are in their sink. Mm. They've gone to a different part of the house to post a nice photo where things look good. Yeah. And I don't think we should really even be criticizing people for doing that. I think that's human nature. Of course, yeah. But even if we know that's happening, I think our subconscious still takes in the message that that's their life, that's their life, that's their life. So even we can read the book, we can read your book, we can read about it and go, yes, that is happening, that is not real. Yet, if you spend 10 minutes, only 10 minutes scrolling Instagram, maybe you'll come across 50 posts. It's not unreasonable for some people. So that's 50 signals to your brain saying, your life is not as good as someone else's life. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think it's interesting, that, that I think absolutely right that we can consciously know something, but subconsciously it doesn't seem to make that much difference. Like, like you know, like, like, like and, and, and I think that's right. And, you know, I, I have that experience as an author. You know, I, I only really use social media as a, as a way to kind of promote my, you know, business as an author. Like I'll tweet book news and when I'm doing courses, I'll tweet that. And when, when I've got a nice book review, I'll tweet that, but I'll never tweet the bad ones. You know, that's my perfectionist presentation. Um, but, but, you know, when, I, when I'm having kind of down days and, or, you know, maybe I'm feeling bad about my career and I see other authors tweeting about their amazing book review and they're at the Hay Festival or whatever they're doing, it, it feels bad. Like it, like it, like it makes me feel, God, it's, so it's, you know, I feel that too. So even though I know the reality of their career is probably a bit like, well, like my ups and downs and you're sharing the good stuff. It's still like, oh God. So, you, you know, like, I, like I've muted I've muted a whole bunch of, you know, friends who are minor writers because like, like it, it became too painful for me to see this constant river of success they were having. And it's, um, you know, it's kind of, it, in a way it's embarrassing to admit, but actually I don't think it should be. I think that's what we should be doing to kind of protect ourselves. And also, I mean, you know, I, I, I have a good idea that I've also been muted by lots of writer friends and you can kind of tell because when you tweet good news, they, they don't react in a polite way. So you think, oh, I'm muted by those people. So, but I don't, I, I completely get it. Like, like I know I've annoyed them <laughs> by, by tweeting too many good book reviews. Like I, I get it. But, but like, so if I, as a 48 year old man who've published six books and all that stuff, feel that pain, then what is it like for a 17 year old boy or a 17 year old girl? Like it's going to be worse, I think. Yeah. I mean, this is great, Will, because this is a really practical thing that we can all do online, let's say. Now, the really interesting thing about that story as well, and this speaks to perfectionism, it also speaks really to status. I want to go into status shortly, you know, I really want to understand your definition of status and why you decided to write an entire book, a brilliant book, but why you decided to devote an entire book to it. I would argue that most people would look at you and go, wow, Will's an incredibly successful writer. He gets great reviews. He's considered a very stylish author. He's, he's, he's sold hundreds of thousands of books. But the problem is everything's relative, mm. right? So even though you know that, or part of you knows that, you are still just as susceptible as anyone else to go online and perceive that that person is doing better than me 
right? And and here's the reality. We all have bad days, right? Yes, it would be great to get to the point where we examined, uh, why does that bother me, right? Let me, let me sort out that. Let me look at that insecurity. And I'm all for that kind of stuff, for sure. But at the same time, I recognize that we live busy lives. And if you find that someone is, not intentionally necessarily, but if you are feeling bad when you constantly see posts by a particular person, of course you could unfollow, but sometimes that feels like an aggressive act to some of us, you know, because we're worried about how we'll be perceived if we've unfollowed. Probably no one will even notice, but we think that they're going to notice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So muting, I think, is a very practical tip. I mean, you've used it, Will, in, in respect to your career. I think I shared once on this podcast before that a friend of mine, when uh, their mother was in the final stages of her life and, you know, they were really going through the mill, cancer, end stage. He realized that at that time, going on Instagram made him feel awful. So I think he went off it for a period of time, or he certainly muted a lot of accounts because he didn't want to see even his mates having good times. He just didn't want to see it at the time. It was too much for him to handle. And so I think this is a really practical thing that we all can do in the modern world because we do live in the modern world. We do live in the online world. Many of us spend hours each day or certainly a lot of time online each day. And I think we do need to understand that we've got to take a bit of control here where we can. Absolutely, yeah. And, and, I, and I think that, that, that we shouldn't feel bad about muting. It is human nature to compare ourselves to other people around us. That's how it works. That, that, that's how the, the status detection system works. It, it's automatic. You can't help it. So, if, it, it, you know, it, you should stay away from that which hurts you. And if you feel like it's hurting you, then mute. You know, don't feel bad about it. <laughs> I think I'm just, proudly. I'm just pulling up the start of the status game, right? Because I think the opening is just amazing. It is so pacey and seductive. Uh, and there's one particular bit that, that comes to mind. Here, here, you put it here. As the psychologist Professor Brian Boyd writes, we naturally pursue status with ferocity. We all relentlessly, if unconsciously, try to raise our own standing by impressing peers and naturally, if unconsciously, evaluate others in terms of their standing. Now, well, I think many of us would like to think that we don't play that game, mm. okay? We don't try to raise our own standing by impressing others. We don't try to judge others and make a you know, an opinion of them based upon what they're wearing or how they're behaving. But in this book, you say we all do. It's fundamentally who we are as humans. Do you still stand by that? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it, it's human nature. You you can't get rid of it. Like, you know, we play status games. So, um, so what is status? Just taking a quick break to give a shout out to Vivo Barefoot, one of today's sponsors. Now, I'm a huge fan of Vivo Barefoot shoes, and I've been wearing them for over 10 years now, well before they started supporting my podcast. And they really have had a huge impact on my own life, as well as that of my family, many of my friends, and a lot of my patients. Now, if you've heard this podcast before, you've probably heard me talk about Vivo's but have you given them a go yet? And if not, my question is, why not make this spring the time 
when you start to give these Vivos a try. Remember, it's completely risk-free to do so because they offer a 100-day trial for new customers. So if you're not happy, you just send them back for a full refund. And I have seen so many benefits over the years when people start wearing minimalist shoes like Vivos. I've seen improvements in back pain, hip pain, knee pain, foot pain, even things like plantar fasciitis. And contrary to what you might initially think, most people find Vivos really, really comfortable. They are the only shoes that my wife and I wear. They are the only shoes that I'll get for my children. And if you go to vivobarefoot.com forward slash live more, they are giving 15% off as a one-time code to all of my podcast listeners. Terms and conditions do apply. To get your 15% off code, all you have to do is go to vivobarefoot.com forward slash live more. Athletic Greens are also sponsoring today's show. Now I get it. You already know that nutrition is important for your physical and mental well-being. And ideally, for sure, everybody would get all of their nutrition from real whole food. But I know from 21 years now of seeing patients that a lot of us struggle to consistently find the time to get the nutrition that we want. Busy schedules, poor sleep, too much stress, there's all kinds of reasons. That's why I'm a fan of good quality whole food supplements like AG1. One tasty scoop contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food source ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, prebiotic, green superfood blend, and more in one convenient daily serving. It helps support energy and focus, aids with gut health and digestion, and it also helps support a healthy immune system, something that is critical, especially at this time of year. Now, AG1 has been in my own life for over three years now, and I genuinely think it is one of the best whole food supplements out there. If you want to take something each morning as an insurance policy to make sure that you are meeting your nutritional needs... I can highly recommend it. So for listeners of the show, if you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more, you can access a brand new special offer where they are offering my audience a free one year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs. Now, vitamin D is a crucial nutrient for our immune system. Many of us have suboptimal levels, especially at this time of year. So I think it's a really great offer to take advantage of. You can see all details of this special offer by going to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more. I think what upsets people sometimes when I talk about status is, is, that, is that they think, and what, may, what, what makes people think that's not me, is that they, they associate status with things like celebrity and money and showing off and all that stuff. Um, and it can be those things, but it isn't, isn't necessarily those things. Status is simply the feeling of being valued. It's the sense of I'm a valuable person. So we used to think about connection being a fundamental human need and belongingness, and, and that is a fundamental human need. So we, we want to get along with people. Um, but we also, like I so said, we want to feel loved uh, and accepted. But we also want to feel valued. Like we, like, like we have value to other people. And that can be like a moral value. We can be a courageous person or a selfless person, or it could be a competence-based value, like good at something, like a great tennis player, um, a great, you know, hunter, or if you're in the hunter-gatherer context or, a, you know, so, 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 so yeah, it's, it's simply the feeling of being valued. I think when I hear the word status, 
I don't immediately go to value. Mm. And I think many people won't. I think they will think, as you say, money, celebrity, fame, that these things symbolize status or designer clothes or a better car or whatever, whatever else, you know, that, that term status, I think, means different things to different people. But mm. I think you do beautifully explain in the book how it is relevant to all of us. Mm. And it's really of being of value. So you, you talk in the book about these two fundamental human needs. We need to connect. Mm. And we've spoken about connection many times on this podcast and how important it is for us as humans to connect with others. Mm. But I think you made the case in the States game that connection is the the kind of first step. You need to feel like you belong first of all. But I, I don't know, I can't remember quite how you word it, but it's it's basically, but once we've connected, we're not that content to be on the lower rungs of the ladder for no, long. No, so we we, we we don't want to feel likeable but useless. Nobody wants to feel likeable but useless. No, nobody wants to have it said to them, yeah, they're a nice person, but they're a bit rubbish, aren't they? They're a bit pointy. Like, you know, that, that, that's not a good thing. I mean, nobody likes to be insulted. That, that, that's because it's a, we're being told we're kind of low status. And there are very solid evolutionary reasons for this. So, you know, as you know, we're, you know, we're a tribal, we're a, we're a you know, tribal species, we're hypersocial. Mm. So, 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 so the way humans have evolved to solve the problems of survival and reproduction is to connect into groups. And it isn't the individual that solves the problem, it's the group that solves the problem. That's how we, that's how we are as humans. And if you think about human life, that's what we do. But, you know, whether it's a nation or a company or a football team, you know, we solve problems in the context of groups. And, and so, so, so the, the, the psychology that enables us to do that, it wants to incentivize us to join groups in the first place. And that's the connection piece. We want to feel like we belong to a tribe. Um, but once we're in the tribe, the, the tribe has got to become functional. It's got to become good at what it's trying to do, whether it's simply survive or to solve a particular problem. So nature has also has to incentivize us to be of value. So, so, so back in the hunter-gatherer context, there are, there are kind of two ways of earning status in that group. One was by being virtuous, so by being selfless, by being courageous, but also by knowing the rules of the tribe, the traditions of the tribes, the rituals of the tribe, following those mm. rituals. And so, so that was a way of being valuable. And the other way of being valuable was by being good at something, being a great hunter, a great honey finder, a great storyteller, or, you know, whatever it might be. So, so you know, evolution's incentive is to, you know, when you become useful to the tribe, you're rewarded with status. So other people go, God, that's a really, that's a really great person. That's somebody that I want to be around. And, uh, but, but also the, the rewards aren't just psychological, they're, 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 they're real. So when, you, when anthropologists study hunter-gatherer tribes, they find that the more status that you have in these tribes, the more food you get, the better food you get, the, safe, the safer your sleeping sites, um, the greater your, the, the access to your choice of mates. So basically, it's this fundamental rule of the subconscious human mind. Go for status, because if you go for status, everything else gets better. And that was true 100,000 years ago in the savannah, and it's true everywhere around the world today. Go for status, because if you go for status, everything else gets better. So status in the hunter-gatherer tribe didn't necessarily mean you're the alpha male, you are the best hunter, right? That That's one way of acquiring status and, yeah. and, and sort of sending signals out that you are a value, mm. uh, you're showing that you're a value by bringing back the hunt, mm. right? But not everyone can be that person. Yeah, there are multiple status games. The, the, the best person, the, the, the person who's best at finding sweet potatoes, the person that's best at finding honey, but also the virtue stuff. So, you know, 
ritual and, and sacred belief are very important to humans. So you, you could become a holy person, like a, like a sorcerer in some tribes. So, 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 so it's also about who, get, who, who believes the, 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 the sacred beliefs most, um, you know, most fiercely, who polices the tribe. So if you think about the, you know, the modern day, like the Pope, what's the Pope? The Pope is a very high status person with his massive hat and his gold and his palaces and you know he's mm. yeah, you know and, and 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 all the deference and worship. But he's a he, he's a virtue status celebrity. Like you know he he's become incredibly high status in that because he he knows the rules, he believes the beliefs, he follows the rules. I mean, this is interesting. Well, like there's different status games, right? Because I I suspect that some people may listen and go. Yeah, I get it that there's people around me who are pursuing status. Well, I can see them. They're the yeah. ones who are really driven. They're working all hours. They're working at weekends. They, they're driven to get to the top. I think that's quite obvious to us that, mm. yeah, okay, now that you mentioned status, I get it. They're seeking out more status. But you mentioned the Pope there, and yes, his clothing, but I don't know, what about someone like the Dalai Lama? Mm. Right? How is he playing a status game? Because he's not at least to my knowledge, trying to acquire more money and necessarily influence and, well, maybe influence, well, I don't he, know. He, well, I would argue that. I mean, well, so, okay, go on. So, so, go so, on. so one of the most reliable signals of high status is influence. Like the more status that you have, the more, the more influence that you have. And Dalai Lama has huge amounts of influence in his tribe. And I think the way to look at it is that every human group has a hierarchy. There are people at the top, people at the bottom and people in between. That's a status game. And so... You know, the Dalai Lama is at the top of his status game. So, you know, and, and he'll be treated with deference by people and respect by people and they'll let him speak. And so, so... So hold on, he's playing a different status game, let's say, um, compared to, I don't know, a politician. Well, yeah, he's, play, well, he's playing what I would describe as a virtue game. So, 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 so go on, tell what, what are yeah. the different status games that yeah. we play? So there are three. Essentially, there are three. I mean, there, there are things like age and beauty, but they're not particularly interesting. I mean, there are three main status games that humans play. The first one is dominance. So dominance is the form of status we've been playing um, since we were animals. So for millions of years, the dominance is violence, the threat of violence, but also social violence, bullying, ostracization, name calling. So when you force somebody else to attend to you in status, think of like a mafia don, that's dominance. Um but then the two more recent kind of forms of status game, the, 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 the two games that really define our humanity are, are, are these status games that are all about, as I said, being of value to, to our tribe. And the first one is virtue, the virtue game. So what does that mean? By being a good person, by developing the reputation as a good person. Okay, hold on. This is a, this is really, this is a really nice one, right? Because mm. we, we, we might push away from the dominance one. Yeah. We might think, even though it's, it's maybe fundamentally who many of us are, Yeah, we'd like to think as humans that we've evolved now to not necessarily need to do that. I know you make the case that that's not yeah. the case, but the virtue one, being a nice person, doing things where yeah. people perceive you as being nice, yeah. that's quite a nice game to play, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I think what I'm sensing is like, like um, people automatically assume that status is a bad thing. So they get into this defensive idea, but, yeah. it, but it isn't. Status is a reward for being valuable. Like that's a good thing. But because, because we're kind of programmed to think about status in terms of money and fame, we think of it as a bad thing. But it's the, and it is 
terrible in lots of ways, but it's also amazing in lots of ways. Like it's amazing that the human animal has evolved a system of reward for when we're selfless, for when we're good, for when we do things for other people. Like, like w w when we give of ourselves and do something good, whether it's, you know, a tenor to somebody who's homeless or whatever, firstly, we feel it inside us. You feel an, a jolt. You, you can almost feel yourself move up in your body. Like, so you feel better about yourself. Your self-judgment improves. But also, you know, if you tell other people, if other people see you, they, they, they think better of you too. So you raise a little bit in status. Like, that's not a bad thing. <laughs> that's a really good thing. Like, if you took away that from humans, life would be horrific. You know, like, like, like so the fact that we, that, that, that nature has evolved to incentivize us to be selfless and giving of ourselves is a wonderful thing. Okay, so we've got two out of the three status yeah. gains, but I'm just going to pause you there, Will, because I was thinking, so if I think to patients of mine in the past yeah. who may have been struggling, right? One of the things we, we talk about a lot on this podcast is the difference between success and happiness and yeah. how a lot of the time we're driven for more and more success. We think a better car, a better phone, a better holiday, a nicer house. These things are going to make us happier. And there's countless stories of people who have acquired all those things, have got those ticks, yet when they get there, they're still feeling unhappy and miserable. And actually that drive, that drive caused them to work too hard not sleep enough, not look after their health. So there's a real consequence on their health as well. And I guess now looking at that through the lens of the status mm -hmm. game, they're, they're playing this game that they, they keep thinking more and more and more is going to make them happier. But well, problem number one, the way I see it is you can't win that game because let's say money is how you are defining your status. Until you are Jeff Bezos, mm someone's always got more than you. So it's pretty dark that because if, if you're driven by that, you can never win. And that's very true. Like in the book, it's a great flaw in human cognition. So there's a sense in which the conscious experience of life is a story. Like the subconscious reality of life is it's this game, this set of games we're playing. But we experience life as a story with happy endings. And it's like, when I get that iPhone, I'm going to be happy. Mm -hmm. When I get that job, I'm going to be happy. And it's this kind of weird lie that your brain's telling you, you're going to be happy. There's a happy ending. There ain't any happy endings. You know, that, that's not how life is because we're actually playing a game with no end. And so um, that's functional because it keeps us getting out of bed in the morning. It keeps us striving. It keeps us pushing. It keeps us wanting to be of value again and again and again. So it's good and bad. But it's also bad. Yes, exactly. Because we could, we never get there. And and it kind of makes life exhausting. In, in a way, it's kind of comforting too, because because often, what, what you know, we, we, we can kind of be guilty of looking up at very high status people like Jeff Bezos or... And I'm Taylor, for some reason, I'm picking on Taylor Swift today, but Taylor Swift, and, and, and be jealous and think, oh God, if only I was more like them. But they ain't happy either. And that's why, like, I think we know that. I, th I, th I think, you know, you know I, I think there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a general kind of folk understanding that, that money doesn't buy you happiness. And that's why, because what, what people are pursuing isn't really money, because money hasn't been around long enough for us, for us to evolve a craving for it. It's status. And you never win the status game because there's always somebody that's above you. There's always a threat to your status. Like, you know, the most powerful, successful person in the world can be treated as low status by a taxi driver and feel bad. 
and feel, oh, you know, so, so we're constantly measuring our status all around us. And, and no matter who we are, we, we, we're vulnerable and sensitive to signals that we are less than we would like to be perceived. There, there, there's so much going on in my brain at the moment, Will, <laughs> as, you, as you expand upon your ideas. I, I want to get to these virtue games in just a moment. Mm. Before I do, though, you mentioned Taylor Swift again. Yeah. And again, let's just use her as... Um, you know, an archetypal kind of celebrity yeah. who many people around the world will look up to. Yeah. And we spoke about perfectionist presentation, right, on social media, how people put out their best self. And we, I think we can all rationally get why that's problematic. We're comparing ourselves to uh, an unrealistic and unattainable ideal. But then let's take that one step further. Because people now are showing more vulnerability and realness online, right? Mm. So just just follow my thread here because I'm not yeah. quite sure where I'm going, but I think there's something at the end of this, mm. which is if Taylor Swift also posts, hey guys, you know, I've had a really bad day today, you know, um, really struggled with this and, you know, workload was getting on top of me, just wanted to share that, right? Mm. Whatever. Mm. So she shares something which is not perfectionist presentation. It's actually quite relatable. It's yeah. like, oh, yeah, it's not all perfect in her life. Now, we would think, or you would think initially that's a good thing. But I'm now starting to wonder, does that even reinforce the distance between you and Taylor Swift even more? And what I mean by that is we kind of get that even though we don't maybe our subconscious doesn't believe it, we sort of get that, you know, I'm sure Taylor Swift's life isn't all great, even though it seems to be all great. We we appreciate that, yeah, I'm not going to be on stage singing in front of thousands of people and having number one singles and albums. But if they start to become more relatable, because they also have a bit of anxiety and stress like you, I actually wondered, does that reinforce the gap even more? Because you think, yeah, she's just like me, but she's not like me because she sells <laughs> thousands of records. Do you know what I mean? I always yeah. think I have a slight conflict with that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I see the point. I do see the point. Yeah, and I, I do think it's, I, I do think it's, you know, a, a good thing that people are, are much more aware. I mean, as I said, selfie was published in twenty seventeen, and since I wrote that book, people are much more. I'm not saying it's because of the book, obviously, but but it just. Well, I'll say it is because of the book. You really did put it on the map. (laughs) I didn't at all. But like, uh, but but like, um, but 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 you know, people are aware of these ideas now, and 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 there's there's more of awareness that we've got to show our that even celebrities should show their full selves, and and that things aren't perfect. Um, and I and I do think that's you know that 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 is a you know that is a good thing. Yeah. Um, in general, but 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 I think you've also got to factor in the crazy obsession that humans have with status and that, and, and that actually what might happen then. And I think it is happening in, to a to an extent is, is now being sad and miserable and stressed and anxious becomes high status because Taylor Swift is doing it. Mm. To say, and, and so, 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 so I think that's the danger that, that, that actually, um, especially amongst younger people who are, who are, really, you know, when you're an adolescent, yeah. you're very interested in status. You're very interested in, in, in copy flat to conform what other people are doing. And so I think there's a danger that when high status people start um, broadcasting their misery, that misery itself starts to become seen as high status. And I, and I think that's, 
that, 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 that's a potential downside. I, th- I think we are seeing that. I mean, I, I want to just echo what you said. I agree it's a good thing when mm. we see other shades of that person, not just the, the singular shade that the marketing machine would like us to see. Definitely. I think that is a good thing. But I think we are seeing a rise of performative vulnerability, performative authenticity, which is there for some people maybe without even realizing it. That's how seductive this stuff is without even realizing it. I think people, some people may end up performing to get the validation because it is high status now. Yeah. And you, you, How vulnerable can you be? Yeah. You, you, see, you see it also in the privileged discourse that's that, that's all, all through social media, which is, you, you know, like back in the 80s, being rich and successful was high status and that isn't anymore. Like, you know, like, be, be, you know, because so, so, we've got this idea of privilege. So you see this almost comical attempt of, of very, very privileged people like, highly educated, very beautiful, successful people just searching for anything they can find to, to, to say, well, this, I, I'm low privileged on this thing. And, they, and then that becomes their kind of brand. So, 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 and that's all part of the status game that, that privilege is very low status in this current culture we've got. So, so there's this search, everyone's got this kind of search on for how I can present myself as, as, as less than privileged. Yeah. I, th- I think a key point there for me, Will, is it's, it's very easy to hear in that story and look down on that person. But but I think that's a danger. I think that's a mistake because the idea I get from reading the status game, that the real message that sits with me is that actually we're all playing this game. We may not realize we're playing this game, but we are playing this game. And some of the humans want to be seen as of high status. So you can almost not blame that person if now low privilege is a status symbol you almost can't blame that person for trying to acquire status in that way, can you? Well, it's not even about almost. It's, you're absolutely correct. Like, I think when you, it's like an observational comic. When you, when you observe this thing and you suddenly realise how weird it is, it's a bit funny. But you're right, like, it, it's completely human nature. We all do it. No one's exempt from this stuff, not even the Dalai Lama. So it's like, you shouldn't look down your nose at people that are doing that because they're just being human. This, is what, being this human. is what humans do. This is literally human nature. Like, this is... You know, if there was a human book of instructions, this would be, you know, a massive chapter. This is yeah. in our source code. There's, there's two things there, right? I, and again, I'm, I'm coming back to the, the prologue of the book because it, there's just so much gold in it, right? And there's a bit where you're speaking about whatever you, maybe it's not in the prologue, but you were basically saying whatever you want in life, whether it's more money, whether it's to help the world, whether it's more sex, whether it's more followers, whatever you want in life is going to be served better if you play the status game. That isn't, is, would you, is, that, is that an accurate reflection of what you wrote? Uh, absolutely, yeah. So, 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 so if you are an entirely selfless person or as selfless as a person gets and, and devote your life to helping, say, the homeless, you know, if you're an ordinary human, it's not just that you want to help the homeless, it's that you want to help as many homeless people as you possibly can. So you want to be as good as, poss- as you possibly can at the job of helping yeah. the homeless. So that's, that's your status game. And that's when it's good. Like because, because it's, it, 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 you're incentivized to be incredible. And, 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 you know, and that's the best of human nature. Like, yeah. Other animals don't have this incentive to be incredible. They just want to survive. But humans, we want to be incredible. And, and that's... That's a brilliant thing. 
before we get to virtue games, which I keep trying to get to, <laughs> I feel that this idea that it can be a double-edged sword, that it can be good, this driver status, to get us out of bed, to try and be better, to master a skill, to be of more value. But if we cross that threshold, so it sounds like a bit like hormesis to me, the stress response. A little bit of stress helps us perform better right? A little bit of stress before you go on stage, before you record a podcast, you know, it gets your brain working better. Too much stress yeah. for too long a period of time without recovery from it is going to mean before a podcast that I can't get any thoughts out on the mic or on stage. My brain is fried. There's a sweet spot, right? There's a sweet spot. And the, I think it's chapter 16 in the States game, The Floor. Yeah wonderful chapter. And you talk about Paul McCartney. Yes. I wonder if you could tell that story because Paul McCartney is that person, is is a person, first of all, who's considered a really nice person. Yeah. Like anyone in the music industry who meets him and talks about it says, wonderful guy, right? But the story you tell in there of Paul McCartney really shows us that none of us, I think, are immune to playing this game. Yeah, again, I feel a bit bad picking on Paul. But, but the reason I've picked on him is, 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 as you say, he's a nice guy. I don't think you picked on no, him. No, you use him as an example. Yeah, yeah use him as an example. And, and, and just, to under, uh, just to sort of underline the fact that, as you said before, like, I'm not saying that, that he's done anything wrong. It's just that he's human and this is what humans do. So basically, Paul McCartney, he has had more status than probably anybody walking on this earth at these, today. Like, can you imagine? Like, he basically invented modern pop music. I mean, he was in the Beatles, for God's sake. How much status can any one human take? And yet, um, you know, he, he has this kind of history of getting really like when when him and John Lennon started working together, they had it, they made this sort of pact, they made this agreement in the bedroom when they were teenagers that, that that no matter how much anybody contributed to any song, they'd all be credited to Lennon McCartney, right? So that's the nice thing. We'd say it doesn't matter. So you can write it, I can write it, we can both write it. It doesn't matter. It's always going to be Lennon and McCartney. But, but you know, in his middle age, he started to get a bit annoyed about this because it's like, why should John Lennon's name come first when I did most of the work on that song? You know, and it bothered him. It bothered him to the extent that, that when he would to um, record live albums or out with the wings and they would do Beatles songs. He would flip reverse the names on the album sleeve. So it was McCartney, Lennon. Um, and, uh, you know, he got into a big kind of row with Yoko Ono, who who, who uh, owned the kind of publishing, uh, I think she had, you know, John Lennon's kind of rights had passed Yoko Ono. And um, there, there was even a threat of legal action from her. And, and, and yeah, so, 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 so uh, you know, I love that because it's like even... Because who cares? Like to anybody that isn't Paul McCartney, who cares what order the name comes in? Everybody thinks you're a genius, mate. Like they do. You got it in the bag. Uh, and yet he just couldn't leave it alone. This 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 Lennon McCartney thing. It bothered him a lot. Yeah, I mean it's so powerful that because it really is that if if Paul McCartney, with all his status, success, fame, money, right, all the things that the modern world will value. He's got them all, yeah. despite all of that. Mm. The order of the names bothers him. Yeah. I think there's two ways you could take it. You know, one way is it, it's like there's no hope for anyone or, <laughs> or it can mean we can be a bit more forgiving to ourselves and go, you know what, it's human nature. It's human nature. And it, and it then speaks back to what you said about, let's say, muting people, Yeah, right? It's like, listen, it doesn't make you a bad person that you are 
unfairly comparing yourself to someone else, you are, that's okay. Mm. And if it makes you feel better day to day, just meet that person. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and don't feel bad about it because it, it, your brain is just doing what your brain is designed to do. So, so yeah, you know, mute away, don't feel bad. I, I, yeah, I completely agree. And it's, and it's, yeah, I mean, as you say, if it's affecting Paul McCartney, it's, it's, it's going to affect all of us. Virtue Games was the second type of status game you were talking about. Mm. And I started thinking about previous patients of mine who were maybe not getting status from their work. Or for whatever reason in their life, they felt as though they weren't achieving or mm. doing enough. Maybe they came to see me with mental health problems. And when you talk about virtue games, I'm thinking a lot about volunteering mm. and how we know the benefits of volunteering are huge. They're profound. I've written in previous books about how uh, patients of mine, when they started going to park run, not necessarily to run, just to volunteer. Their lives would start to change because suddenly they had a community, people would miss them. They felt a value. If they didn't show up, people would ask, hey, listen, you know, we really miss you last week. You know, they suddenly felt so they belong. So that's, I guess that's community, but probably also status as well. So my question is, well, if someone doesn't feel they are getting adequate status mm. in a certain element in their life, can they compensate for that by getting status in another area, i.e. for working for a charity or volunteering? Yeah, 100%. I mean, and actually it's one of the things I recommend at the end of the book is, is, is like, you know, play multiple games. Uh, you know, I, I think that's... Play multiple status play games. Play multiple status games, absolutely. Because, um, you know, the, 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 the research is crystal clear and, and that's the, the, the more groups people belong to, the happier they are, the more stable their kind of emotionality. Um, so it's really good for us to be members of multiple groups. And for me, um, you know, a big part of that is, is that you've got multiple sources of status. Um, so, 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 yeah, and, and, and absolutely. I mean, in our kind of success-focused world that we live in, you know, volunteering can be a you know a fantastic way of, of of just creating a new status game for yourself, creating a new source of um, that signal to your subconscious brain that I am of value to other people. So, okay, so play multiple games. Now, why is that? Is it because if you play multiple games, a bit like spread betting, right? If one of those games falls flat, or Okay, let's say, for example, and I want to talk about retirement here as well, because mm. I think it really fits in here. But let's say that your job is what gives you your sense of status, right? You know, yeah, I'm a whatever, I do this, I drive this car, I do, you know, whatever it might be, but that's the only game you're playing. Is the problem with just playing one game that you become vulnerable, that if you get fired or if the economy changes and you lose that job or whatever, you know, someone else gets promoted above you and you suddenly feel, wait a minute, I've been waiting for that promotion. Like, are you saying that having a different game means that you're less likely to fall into the depths yeah. compared to if you just relied on one? Yeah. So it's a hedge. That's one of the main reasons. But I think, you know, the bigger thing about this is that to understand is that your status games are your identity. Like it's that important to who you are, to your sense of self. You are the games that you're playing. Like you are a doctor, you are a podcaster. Like, like the, 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 our sources of status 
um, you know, they are who we are. So they're that important. So when they go wrong, as sometimes they do go wrong, sometimes doctors get complaints made against them. Sometimes podcasts fail, you know, um, you shouldn't underestimate how damaging that is to the, to the human self. It's your identity that's being kind of undermined and attacked. So, so, so yeah, I, th- so I think that's why it's good to play multiple games um, because you're hedging, you know, so, so, and if you're just playing one game, e- e- even if it isn't the case of that one game completely like, catastrophically failing, which it might do, but, you know, that game's going to have ups and downs and ups and downs and ups and downs. And if you've only got one source of status, those down days are going to be a lot worse um, than if you had, you know, perhaps two or three sources of status. You're playing two or three different games. Does this in any way play into, I don't know, empty nest syndrome, for example, where, you know, of course, every situation is different, but the sort of stereotypical idea that let's say a mother, for example, uh, has devoted her adult life to looking after the children and let's say has stopped working in order to do that, there can often be a real problem Um in terms of how they view themselves when the child then leaves home, let's say goes to uni or gets a job and moves out, whatever it might be. Is this related to just playing one status game? I played that status game and now that's gone. I've got a real problem. Well, it, well it's, it's definitely related to it because because it's identity. Like if all if, if all of your identity is being a mum or a dad, then of course empty nest syndrome is going to be a real problem for you because I mean, and I actually had a conversation very recently with somebody I went to school with, a woman I went to school with, who, who's having exactly that issue. You know, she was saying to me, like, I just, all my kids are going to university and, and I don't know who I am. That's what she said, I don't know who I am. And it's like, well, that's because, you know, identity is so bound up in our status games. And, and her, her identity was, I'm a good mum. I'm a great mum. And I've got horses for them and, you know, all this other stuff. And I mean, I, th- I think that's the interesting thing about parenthood. It isn't just that we want to be mums and dads. We want to be good mums and good dads. And, you know, and that, again, that's the function. It's a good thing that we want to be like that. So, you know, status is bound up in, in, in our sense of how effective we are as parents. The other thing, the interesting thing about parenthood is that, is that we start playing status games through our children. So we start earning, we, we want our children to start earning status for us on our behalf in a kind of weird way. So we become, you know, kind of, I don't want to say irrationally proud of our children, but because it's not irrational, but we, but, 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 but the, our, our children's successes can take on enormous importance to us personally because they're almost playing status games on our behalf. So I think that's, that, that's something else that can happen. And that can of course become incredibly problematic. I was chatting to a uh, tennis coach last year, really nice guy I know. And he was telling me how one of the kids who he was coaching, he had to actually have a chat with the parents say, listen, I don't think you being here when he's playing is helping. Like he had to actually ask them to not come to the coaching. And many coaches or teachers will say that actually sometimes parents are living through their kids mm. and often it's the the dreams that they could never meet. And of course there's pros and cons of this, but I, I've seen it slip into really quite toxic behaviors a lot of the time. And, you know, I try, I really am trying to say that with compassion because I, I do understand that um, every parent is, is, is really trying their best based on what they know, based on the means that they have. They're trying their best for their children but I do think sometimes we, we do need to ask ourselves, why are we asking our mm. child to do that? Is it for them or is it for us? 
Yeah, I mean, I had this growing up with my parents. My my my, my dad worked in education, um, and and so, and my my mum was like chairman of the governance for the school I went to, so education was their status game, and 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 they put enormous pressure on me to. Um, succeed at school my dad was they were they were determined that I was going to go to oxford university and um and, and i i i you know i perform I, I don't want to blame them for my terrible performance at school because it, it wouldn't be fair but but and as you say they, they wanted the best for me but it caused immense stress and um um up you know misery for everybody concerned when i was growing up because they just because of the you know i even had like a, a, a you know the a teacher sit me down and say we know how much that your parents are putting too much pressure on you, but you can't let it get to you. You can't let it affect you. So, so, so yeah. I mean, I had that experience m- myself because the only value that they could, that they could see was education. It was everything to them, and and I, I, I it, it would, it wasn't what I was pursuing when I was a when I was a young man. It's funny, well, hearing that, and it's a very common um, narrative in immigrant families, certainly in Indian immigrant families, that success in education is prioritised above everything. I always thought it was about money and security, but really your book is making me think, is it really about status? Because as immigrants to a different country, you're often not getting that status. I remember my dad in, I think it was a few months before dad died. He he said to me, because he never complained about this stuff throughout my life, but he said something to me, Will. He said, um, I put up with this because this is not my country. You won't put up with it because you were born here. It's pretty powerful, isn't it? It's incredibly powerful. Yeah, it was really powerful. And I think that's right. I think because, you know, status is always upstream of money and security. Because as I said, it's, it's, that, it's, that, it's that basic rule that the, the human brain knows. It's go for status. Because if you go to status, you're going to get the money, you're going to get security, or you're, you're going to get what you need to survive and reproduce. You're going to get by going for status. In terms of these virtue status games, I think you started volunteering maybe about six months ago. Was your decision to start volunteering because of what you learnt when writing the status game? Yeah, yeah. So that's right. So I started volunteering at the Samaritans and, um, you know, that's had its roots in status. The, the, the first piece I ever wrote for a broadsheet newspaper when I was in my 20s was for The Observer. And it was an interview with the, with the then CEO of the Samaritans. And um, I was interviewing him and he started crying halfway through the interview. And he was like, oh, you're good at this. He said, oh, you know, you should join the Samaritans. You'd be a great Samaritan. And, you know, that status, I remember thinking, oh, you know. <laughs> you know so was, that kind of planted the seed. But when I wrote the, um, the status game, you know, I, I, I recommend in the back of that book, play multiple games. And I was just thinking that's so hypocritical, man, because you do, all you are is a writer. Like I'm not a parent. Like you just write. That's what you do. Like your whole life is dedicated to your books. That's it. You were playing one game. A success game. Which makes you vulnerable. Yeah. Because if, yeah. if I don't know, if one of your books doesn't do as well as you perceive it should do. Yeah then you're vulnerable to go into a negative spiral? Very negative. Yeah, it's catastrophic. It's like, it's, it's depression because that's who I am. That's my identity. And now my identity is tumbling. So I was like, so, so I think now's the time. And the other thing was that because I'm not a parent, um, you can't really count dogs. <laughs> I'm not a parent. Um, I was thinking, you know, what, do you, what good do you do? Like, where's your virtue game? You know, boyo, you know, like this is not good enough. So, so I thought I'm going to, I'm going to do that Samaritans thing. I'm going to do it. 
And, um, it, you know, I found it incredibly um, rewarding. Um, you know, it, like, in it, and it's gratifying in a sense because everything I wrote in that book, I've now tested it for myself. And it's true. Like, it, even when I was still training and I wasn't yet taking calls, you know, I, I would, um, you know, leave the training sessions just feeling feeling just really good about life, like just feeling, you know, 10 kilos lighter. And, and the next day I'd be sort of upbeat as well. And and now I'm actually taking calls and helping people. It's, you know, the, the effect is kind of magnified and it's, and it, and it, and it is this, so I, 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 you know, so it's, so it's a new source of status, but it's also like with the identity thing, it's like, a, it's like a new version of me. Like I've created a new universe in which I can, play the games of game of life in. So, 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 so it really is, it has been a powerful kind of, uh, you know, lesson to me. And, 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 you know, when, you know, sometimes you have shifts and you feel like you've not really helped anybody. They don't really go very well, but sometimes you do for you. If you've really, you know, you, 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 somebody calls up and they start off there and they end up up there and you feel, you, you know, you drive back at three in the morning feeling great. And it's like, and, 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 and that feeling is I have been of value this evening. No, it, and that is a fact. It's inarguable. I've been of value to the, to the, you know, to humanity in some way this evening, and it's automatic. You know, it feels good. So, 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 so yeah, that, that's been a really um, powerful thing. And if I hadn't written the status game, I, I don't think I ever would have done it. Writers often write the books they need for themselves. <laughs> they do, yeah. <laughs> I think about my books, I think about your books, I, I, I speak to so many authors on this podcast and it's incredible how many times that comes out, that there's something, which makes sense, doesn't it? Because why would you go deep into a topic if it if you weren't personally invested yeah. in it in some way, yeah. if you didn't want to understand it and know it better and, and learn from it? I mean, volunteering is interesting, as you, as you described that story, Will, you went into volunteering to help you spread bet, to play <laughs> another status game, or at least, you know, that's that's one way we can look at it. What were some of the unexpected benefits that you got? Connection. I mean, I, I still remember, f- like, walking into the room, the training room for the first time. It's in this little terrace house in Ashford in Kent, and you go up these steps, and it was this room just with 12 complete strangers in it. And um, I, th- I think I was one of two men in the room. It was all, all female. And, 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 you know, being very introverted and being alone, like it was really threatening. Like I felt so uncomfortable. Like, and, and it was just, and I, and I, and I immediately was going to this kind of defensive shell and, you know, it's, it's not a good place to be and to kind of force myself out of it. And now I, I can, I count all of those people, you know, really good friends. And, and, and I think one of the things I've got out of it is that is connection. You know, as I said, that even when I wasn't taking calls, I hadn't wasn't being of value to anybody. I was just sitting in training for three hours on a Thursday night. I would leave feeling good because I'd I'd, I'd experienced human connection. I'd, I'd experienced the, I'd had the, uh, the, the 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 fundamental kind of elemental experience of sitting around a table and being with other people mm. and having them look at me and as an acceptable person. So 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 so, so that for me as a, as somebody that, that 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 was struggling with feeling very isolated, you know, being a writer working at home. That was also very. Um, it was what I needed. It was, yeah. it was. It was this kind of social vitamin that I was di- seriously deficient in, and it was something that I needed. And in fact, you know, when I before I put my application in to join the Samaritans, the one thing I wanted to know was: is this a working from home deal, or do we go out? Because if it's working from home, I ain't doing it. And but but no, they, they, you have to go in because you have to do it with other people. With hindsight, now looking back, 
Were you lonely? Yeah, extremely lonely. And 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 I would talk about it often, you know, with my wife. You know, like 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 it was my one main thing. Like I'm, I, you know, like I'm I'm really lonely. I gave up drinking alcohol in my mid twenties, and 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 because I had developed a problem with it, and um, it let giving up drinking alcohol meant the immediate kind of collapse of my social life because it all revolved around alcohol and the people that I was hanging out with, they were drinking buddies and drug buddies as well, you know? So, um, and so, so from kind of from that point on, I was, I was extremely isolated. You know, I had my wife, you know, who, who's great and he's my, both my wife and my best friend, but that's too much pressure to put on a mm. wife. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people will struggle with health change mm. because their pre-existing friendships and communities often revolve around a certain behavior. You just spoke beautifully to that, whereby you used to go out drinking with your mates or with your crew and whether it was the alcohol or the connection or the, the camaraderie, whatever it might be, you were getting a lot from that. So when you, and, and let's take it away from you for a minute, because many people, let's say they want to give up drinking or reduce it or start eating a different way, but their friendships, their, their existing communities still do that behavior. They find it really, really hard. So through the lens of status, can we say that sometimes people will have to give up their status in order to make positive health change, which ultimately ends up being the reason why they can't stick to it because the community power is much more, it's much stronger than that individual power. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, it, 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 it kind of can hold you back. And sometimes you have to see that this if a source of status has become toxic for you, you have to have the kind of courage to kind of leave it and, you know, join a new, join a new game. Yeah. yeah. I think that's, that's true. I think uh, yeah, sorry. And, I, and I think that's how, you know, um, things like CrossFit and Weight Watchers work and, you know, because, because, because they've made status games out of a kind of health outcome. And, and that, and that's why people find them successful because, because, um, you know, by showing up and, sharing your progress on this journey towards, you know, losing excess weight or becoming more physically fit in the CrossFit um, thing, then, then, then you're, you're, you're making a status game of it. And, and so, so that's very powerful. And, and I think that's, that's the kind of secret power of those organizations. So talk to me a bit about CrossFit. What, yeah. what, how does it play into status and why has it been so successful? So CrossFit is one of those things where, you know, there's, there's that old joke about how can you sell when so, I mean, I always think about it being Oxford University because 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 in the media world where I've, where, where I've d done my kind of work over the years, if someone's been to Oxford or Cambridge, they'll they'll find a way of letting you know in three seconds. And, and CrossFit's one of those ones where like, uh, and I always find it interesting because it's because that's always a source of status. If that's one of those things that somebody just always finds a way of letting you know within about three minutes, that's a, that's a big source of status. And CrossFit's one of those things. And, and you know, and, and you know, people even call it a cult. And as a right in the right, right in the status game, a cult is like the ultimate status game. Like it's a pure, it, it's a cult is such a successful status game that it just literally takes over people's 
minds. Mm. And that's, you know, so, so, it, so it does have kind of cultish aspects. So that's why I wanted to write about it because, because you know, it's really interesting. And also I went to, as a journalist, I went to the CrossFit Games in LA a few years ago and saw just how unbelievably obsessed people were with, with, with the discipline. I mean, it's, it, it really is incredibly successful, you know, to the extent that people will push themselves and push themselves famously beyond their limits. And, you know, it, they don't do it anymore because they got a lot of <laughs> pushback. But, but there was a time in the early CrossFit years where um, pushing yourself to the point where you vomited uh, became a status symbol. And they would even wear T-shirts and um, with, with this dragon vomit, with vomiting. It became a, so that's how, that, that's how successful it was as a status game. And so there's been some psychologists have gone into CrossFit to try to figure out what is it about CrossFit that gives it these properties? That's, why is CrossFit different going to a gym? And what they said is, that, that, that is, is exactly that. So CrossFit has, it has, they call it a WOD, a workout of the day. But the, but the, so, and, and so everybody does the same workout. But the, but the critical thing is, is um, it's kind of tuned up or down to your personal ability. So, mm. so, 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 so that means that it's not like, um, um, it's not like a, a, a contest of, of, of member versus member, like in a, in a race, everyone's just trying to achieve the workout that they to, the, to the best of their ability. So, so, so there is an individual competition. And the other cultural thing in CrossFit is that, is that the rule is that everybody has to massively support everybody else. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter how fit you are, everybody crowds around you. It's very American crowds around you and just gives you, come on, you can do it. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. So, 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 you, so everybody's pumping each other with status and that's why it becomes addictive. Mm. That's why people become obsessed with it. That's why people love it so much because it's this beautifully designed status game where every, everybody's being maximally generous with the status that they're giving to each other. And they're not, um, you know, the other, the opposite version of that would be like, if it's self against self, nobody wants to give status out because I want to keep it all for, all for myself. Mm. That's, that's a kind of toxic status game. That's the modern corporate world. Yeah. I mean, in and, I, and in the book, I, as you know, I contrast it to Enron. You know, Enron, um, uh, one of the most corrupt, or if not the most corrupt company in history. Um, and the, the way they designed their corporate status game was, they called it the, the, the Yank and Rank system. So every few months, the senior management would get together, literally with a spreadsheet of everybody who worked for Enron, and they would put them in an order. And the top, I don't know, I think it was 15% got promoted. The bottom 15% got fired immediately and everybody else was just terrified. So that is toxic. So and that, so and in, that led to yeah. huge amounts of corruption. Yeah, because, because people are so desperate to earn status. Status is, is in such short supply. Um, that but they will no, do no, whatever it, it takes. Whatever it is. So climbing over each other. Uh, but also breaking the law. And, and so that's what happened. It's interesting, the CrossFit example, where it really speaks to this idea that status is neither good nor bad. It just is, right? It can be used up to a point to get more and more people fit and staying engaged with movement and natural movement and whatever it might be. But then if it goes past that point to where you're being encouraged or some people feel as though they're being encouraged to vomit yes. and it's been celebrated in t-shirts, <laughs> yeah. then they start getting injured. It becomes yeah. problematic. Yeah. Now let's contrast CrossFit to Parkrun. Mm. Because Parkrun is also very successful at getting people to come regularly, feel part of the community, feel as though they belong. It's you, you can be competitive, but it, I would say it's a pretty non-competitive environment in general. 
And then I'm drawn back to the central case you make in the introduction about that these two core needs. One is connection, but mm. once we've connected, we want status. Parkrun, to me, appears to be a connection piece. But I don't know if you've been to Parkrun or not, Will, but, but can you make a case that any of that is status as well? Yeah, I, I would agree with you that it's mostly a connection piece, but 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 also th th there's the very fun of fundamental kind of basic um, um, idea that by people like, applauding you and cheering you and saying, mm -hmm. well done, that's status as well. Yeah. So it's competence-based status. We want to feel like we're good at something. So, the, you know, in the book, I talk about the various studies that show, like if you do have a tug of war and if there's a cheering audience, the, 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 the tuggers will pull much harder. Athletes will run faster in front of a cheering audience than they will, can, can run faster in front of a cheering audience than they can run without one. So, it, you know, so, 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 mm -hmm. so, so just, so I would agree with you that, that, Compared to CrossFit, part run is much more about belongingness and connection, which is, you know, equally equally important to status. Um, but, but but the element of the of the cheering, the people who volunteer for part run, they're feeling like they've got that virtue status because I'm I'm here setting up the banners and I'm you know making this happen. So so. But you're not saying that in a bad way. The, the word virtue, yeah. Again, because of virtue signalling has <laughs> almost become a a toxic word to many, but you're not no. you're not using the word in a bad way, are you? Saying that's a good thing. Of course it is. Yeah, well, well I'm saying of course it is, but yeah, yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's one of the big problems of talking about status is, is that people immediately put this kind of negative signal on it. And it, and as you, as you so eloquently said, it's neither good or bad, it just is. Uh, but, you know, so virtue status, of course, is, you know, like... Um, uh, often a huge positive, you know, like the, the whole voluntary sector is based on kind of virtue status. Um, um, the, the reason that we have, um, you know, we don't have untrammeled capitalism in the West. We, there are rules, you know, you, you, you have to treat your staff fairly. You have to, you, you can't just fire somebody without going through a proper system. Mm -hmm. That's virtue. That's also virtue. It's like you've got to be fair to people, that sense of fairness. But also virtue can be incredibly dangerous. I mean, virtue is um, uh, lies at the heart of genocide. Virtue, you know, like Hitler thought he was a, you know, virtue is local to its group. So every group has its own idea of what's virtuous. Mm -hmm. So Hitler thought eradicating the Jews was a virtuous act. Um, um, Stalin thought, you know, killing millions of, um, people in the Soviet Union was a virtuous act. So, so, so virtue can be uh, mm. just, just, just like status itself is it, 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 it is both the best of us, but it's also the very worst of us because because people use virtue to justify the most horrific mm. um, acts. The three types of status game we've covered: the dominance game, the virtue game. What's the third one? The success game. Yes, yeah, a competence. So I'm good at something. So Elon Musk is playing a success game. Jeff Bezos is playing a success game. Serena Williams plays a success game. Um, the, the, the people who invented the, you know, vaccines that got us out of the COVID pandemic, they were playing a success game. So the success games is all about how can we achieve this, the, 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 uh, you know, a specific um, success-based outcome. So, so if we are, um, okay, what's the first principles then? So if we get good at something... And then we get validation from others for mm. being good at that thing. That's how we get status. Yeah. So the status doesn't come from the intrinsic value of being good at that. So, so let's just work this through. Let's say Serena Williams just practiced by herself every day and became an excellent tennis player, but no one knew about that. 
would she still be getting any status from that? Or does the status come when you're with other people and they go, wow, Serena, you're amazing. We can see how good you are. Yeah, I was I was smiling when you said that because because that idea of Serena Williams becoming privately the best female <laughs> tennis player in the world and nobody knowing. It, know. It's funny because it's so inhuman. Like, like it's literally, like, it's never going to happen because that's so not human. But yeah, so that's a really good question. So status comes from other people, mm. right? So, 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 so other people give it to us. Uh, unless it's dominance and we, we we force them to give it to us. Um, but but there is a little caveat to that. And that's this idea which, which um, psychologists talk about this idea of the imaginary audience. So this is, you know, we, we've, we've evolved this part of the brain where we can almost rehearse how people are going to respond to our behaviours and our actions in our head. Mm. And so um, another way of thinking about the imaginary audience is the conscience. So, 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 so when we do something bad, we feel low status, like a bad person, you know, we, we degrade ourselves. That's the imaginary audience in our heads warning us. If you, if people find out about this or, or if you actually do this thing that you're imagining, you're going to get a drop. And equally, if we imagine, um, like if I right now imagine what it must be like to have a New York Times number one bestseller, I feel good. And that's my imaginary audience going, yeah, that's, you're amazing. So to, 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 to a limited extent, you know, we, we, we can feel kind of good in, in, you know, intrinsically about the stuff that we do. But ultimately what we want is, that's like, a, ultimately that's just a rehearsal for what we really want, which is the status from our tribe. You know, we're a tribal animal. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, we we, we want to feel of value to the tribe and then the, and the tribe lets us know and that's that's the status. You also make the case that one of the reasons we're so stressed and unhappy is because the status games we play now are just so enormous. Yeah. Take it back to the tribe. You know, what Professor Robin Dunbar, the Dunbar's number, that yeah. the human brain has evolved to only know 150 people. I, I think about that with respect to my own life. And if I went looking, I think I could probably get close to several hundred, if not a thousand opinions every day. It's not healthy for me to be exposed to that amount of opinions, whether they're good or not. Like it, it doesn't, it doesn't do you any good. So I've really changed my own relationship with social media. You know, I do use it. I, I try my best to use it for positive outcomes, to help people with their lives, to drive them to this podcast, whatever it might be. But there's a similar argument there with status, right? Isn't there? Whereby we haven't evolved to play status games on this scale. And if you're playing them on the scale, that's probably why you're struggling. Yeah, exactly. We, we, we've evolved in the context of small groups. And so we've evolved to play small status games. And, and, and I really believe that the, the reason why we, you know, why all this safety and security and comfort that we have in the West hasn't brought us reliable happiness is because of, is because of the status game. It's because we're, we're constantly, we're playing these enormous games now with people incredibly sort of vastly high, higher above us on that, you know, ladder of status. And, 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 and it's just not natural. I mean, you, you know, like if you think about the companies that we work for, these enormous organisations, like how, how far away is the CEO from you? Like it's galaxies away. I mean, one of the amazing statistics I found when I was researching the book was, you know, when we were talking about, how, you know, about, about how corporate how our status games are these days, it was, is that they said that 69 out of the hundred biggest economies in the world aren't nations, they're 
companies. Like that's that, that's amazing. You know, like that's how big and powerful the companies that we work for are. And a company is a status game. You know, it can, you know if you're working for Apple or Microsoft or, uh, you know, Walmart or or Tesco's, you know, or, or whoever it might be, like that is a, you know, that is a big, yeah. scary status game to play. I mean, the other thing, I mean, and, and this, I'll never forget this moment when I was, um, when I was still a journalist, I, um, I went to, I was doing a story about this male escort, like the world, like Britain's most successful male escort. And I went back to his hometown in Wales to talk to his friends and family about, you know, why he'd left for the bright lights of London and his escorting work. And I'll never forget it. So it was, so one of his um, friends was walking me down the high street of this small town in Wales. And he said, um, you know, this was once a mining town and, and, and people were proud to be miners. There was, there was dignity in that. There was value in that, you know, to be, to, to, to be a miner in a mining family was, was, was a good thing. Um, but then the mine shut down. And he said, but then, but, but then we had loads of small businesses. So along this high street, there was the butchers, the baker, the haberdasher, and all these mm. ones. And, and that's great. You know, if your family owned the local shop and, and you as a young person, you were going to inherit the business and, and you'd be imagining, say, if you're going to inherit the butchers, well, when I take it over, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, mm. I'm going to start stocking chorizo or whatever it is. And he said, but then what happened was the Tesco's moved in. And then when the Tesco's moved in, all the local businesses shut down. And he said, you know, he said, I'm sorry, you can get a job behind the Tesco's butcher's counter, but it ain't the same as having mm. the family, you, you know, your dad or your mum owning the, the local butcher shop and you inheriting it. And that always struck me because it's like, I've never heard that expressed before. Because if you look at it, if you look at it on a pure economic basis, well, they had a job in the butcher shop and they got a job in Tesco's, mm. they got a job. It's the same. It ain't the same. Because what happens in these you know, in, in our, with these huge status games is, is the status is massively diluted. In the status mm -hmm. game of your, of your parents' butcher shop, there's four of you perhaps, and you're going to be the king or the queen one day. But in the, behind the butcher's counter in the local Tesco's, you're way down that pecking order. Your life is not the same. Your identity is not the same. The rewards are not the same. And it really matters. It's interesting. A, a few months ago, I spoke to a doctor on this podcast about how to age well. And as part of the research into his book, he visited areas around the world where people are aging very well, you know, the so-called blue zones. And I feel with this anti-aging movement, I think we're missing something really important. One of the things he said in his book was that in these blue zones, in these areas, what he observed was that people knew their place in their community and in their in the society in which they lived. They knew who they were. They knew what their role was. Mm. And I really, I can't shake this idea well at the moment that I keep thinking we're talking about nutrition and muscle to stop getting sarcopenia and how much movement should we do and how much sleep do we need? And of course, I'm not going to argue that those things are not important, right? You know what I do, what I stand for, right? Of course, those things are important. But I think meaning, the meaning of our lives, how we fit into our community, I think it's more important. I'm convinced it's more important than these downstream physical behaviors. I, I, and I think what you just said about the mining town really speaks to that. It sounds like 20, 30 years ago, people knew who they were. You know, it was they could get the same income now for the big corporation, but they're just a number. 
Yeah. That they don't feel that sense of belonging. They don't feel as of value. Yeah. And therefore, and, and actually, maybe this is a, a good place to, to, to start closing down this conversation, is there's a strong relationship between status and health, isn't there? Yeah, it's massive. I mean, and this is what the thing that convinced me that uh, you've got to write a book about this because because it really matters. And so, so th- there was a famous set of studies called the Whitehall Studies and a doctor called Dr. Michael Marmot um, went into, you know, Whitehall is the, you know, famously the British bureaucracy that mm. takes all the government policy and turns it into action. So it's a huge, highly stratified kind of status game. And so the, so Marmot kind of measured health outcomes in, in the in the, in, in the Whitehall and found that the higher you went, the healthier, the better the health outcomes were, the lower the kind of risk of kind of early death was. And so the, so the automatic thing people think is, well, that's because the higher they were up, they can afford a personal trainer and a gym membership. But that's not the case. Like these, these people are all employed by the civil service. They're all getting a you know good wage. Uh, they can all afford the gym. They can all, all afford to eat what they wanted to eat. Um, so, uh, and, and, and indeed what he found was that literally one one level down from the very top. So, so, so still an executive, very, very powerful and rich and successful was slightly less healthy than the one above them. Mm. Um, and, and, and then this was replicated in the lab with monkeys. So, 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 so they took a bunch of monkeys and, and they gave them this um, very unhealthy diet of pizza and chocolate. And um, so the, the monkeys developed high levels of athlosis Sclerotic plaque, probably saying that wrong. Atherosclerotic yeah, plaque. Yeah, I knew the doctor would correct me. <laughs> um, and, and so um, what they found was that the, you know, the, bo- the monkeys at the bottom of the hierarchy would be much more likely to fall ill as a result of that than the monkeys at the top. Wow. And critically, when they, when they conspired to change the hierarchy, the health outcomes changed in lockstep. So it was the hierarchy that was that, that was that was causing um, the, the difference, and and it was a really significant difference. So in Whitehall, your health outcomes were four times. You were, I think you were four times more likely to die early at the bottom of the office hierarchy than you were at the top. So it's it's extremely significant, and it's and it was all about where you stood on that pecking order. The Whitehall study that you just mentioned, you are using it to talk about status. Mm. So the lower status you are, the worse your health outcomes. Mm. We also know that applies to people of low socioeconomic status. Now, yeah. clearly, I would say a lot of people of low socioeconomic status are probably also of low status, but not everyone. Mm. Right? You can still get status even if you aren't living in an affluent area, right? So how, how do you sort of... Marry those two things together. Yeah, 100%. So the Whitehall is one status game, right? That's a game because you've got the hierarchy, you've got people at the top, people at the bottom. But um, what, how it works is we're all playing multiple games. And so, 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 so socioeconomic status, I mean, it's almost like the good thing about it is that, is that we're not compete- everybody isn't competing with everybody. So we, we, we compete with our little groups. We, we, play, we play kind of status games within our socioeconomic status. So, so, so somebody who's living in... Um, you know, a council estate doesn't feel like they're competing with somebody who's living in Downton Abbey. They don't really give a crap about person living in Downton Abbey. What they care about is what the next door neighbour thinks of them, and what the person that the, what mm. the what the handsome boy over the road thinks of them, and what their parents in, friends think of them. So, 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 you know, again, we've got those tribal brains. So we we still kind of, even though we live in these huge kind of gargantuan kind of status games, we still have, have a tendency to of. of, of, of Thinking and feeling tribally, like 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 we, we we try and play as small a game as possible. So 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 it's perfectly possible to be low in inverted commas on the socioeconomic scale, but if you're 
you know, above average on the street, you've got like the best car on the street or one of the nice houses on the street, or you've got the only house that's got a garage on the street. That's high status. That's good. You're going to feel, you know, that's going to make you feel good. It doesn't matter that there's Downton Abbey, you know, 20 miles down the road where they've got all servants or whatnot. You don't care about that. Because we, we, you know, we, we like to, we prefer to play these small games. We naturally play these much smaller games. And that's why when you go around the world, there's, there's no correlation between wealth and happiness. It, you know, like when you go around the world, um, you see people living in terrible poverty who are, who are, who, who, who are happy because they're not measuring their status against you. They're measuring against the people that they're living around near. It's all relative. Yeah, it's all relative. Yeah. It's all relative. And you mentioned cars there. Cars, I think, are a really interesting one because a lot of people do measure their status or an element of the status that they get is probably from the car that they drive, mm. but it's not in all societies, is it? No, 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 totally. So, so, so you might be playing it. So, so every status game has its own way of measuring status. It's like a board game where, 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 where you know, everyone's got different counters and like in different kinds of monopoly money. Like you can measure state, you can use anything to measure status. We're so status obsessed, we use anything. And every status game has a different way of measuring status. And so if you're a top gear petrol head, Cars is cars are your status game. You want the best car possible, mm -hmm. but there's loads of people who just don't care about that. <laughs> who just don't care about what car they drive. It's not a source of status for them. Like it was always interesting to me. Like um, how I've never really been interested in, very much in clothes. Like I don't care about clothes very much. And 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 and. and but then my wife is a former fashion editor. She loves clothes. And 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 it's just it's, it's not. And it, it's simply that I don't use clothes as a. I don't attach my status to clothes, and she does. So it's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's just that we're playing different, you know, different status games. You once mentioned to me about British aristocrats and how actually they don't want to be seen in a flash car. Yeah, yeah, totally. So I think this really speaks yeah. to that. These are unique games that are unique to your tribe. You know, we need to figure out what game we're playing, basically. That's right. So if you're a, if you're a British aristocrat, um, you know, you, what's high status is driving a, a, a beaten up old black Land Rover um, covered in dog hair. Um, that's you know that you know that and, and if you see somebody driving a brand new like Lexus, shiny Lexus, you're going to look down your nose at them because that's so middle class. You know, like having the label and the and the fancy car, and so like you know, so Prince Charles famously has his, you know, his barber jacket that's he he's repaired it by hand, you know, multiple times. That's so Aristo. Like that's an Aristo status signaling. That, that, that would be King Charles to you, mate. Oh, sorry, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> blaspheme against the royalty. Yeah, yeah, no, King Charles, of course. Uh, yeah, so, so but but that's that's his status game. So so it's not cool if you're an Aristo, if you're a royalty, to have a brand new barber jacket. You've got to, you know, it's much cooler if it's a hand me down, ideally, you know, from a your 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 parents or something. Yeah. So. Yeah, and it's interesting how people progress through the ranks and how we value different things depending on who we are like the the affluent billionaire can rock up anywhere in a hoodie it's, yeah. it's fine because they're getting their status from you know their success in life or the company that they built so they can almost they don't have to play the the clothing status game but i think it's more than that i think i think certain status games have have certain rules and so in Silicon Valley, for example, it's not cool to be flash. So, 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 so it's low status to be flash in Silicon Valley. Like they'll, ha they'll happily drive a Tesla, but they, they won't drive in, they won't dress in flashy clothes. It's all about the hoodie. And, you know, Mark, Mark Zuckerberg famously has a relatively small house. Like that's cool. So, so it's high status to be 
less flash. So, so my wife works for a Silicon Valley tech company now and they fly over her economy. It drives her mad. <laughs> but, but, but like even the top executives fly economy because, and, it, and, it, and it's not because they can't afford business because they totally can afford business, but it's not cool in Silicon Valley to be, to be flashed like that. So it's, it's all status signaling. It's, it's basically the first line of your book, life is a game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It is, isn't it? Yeah. It's a game. Yeah. And it's kind of what game are we playing? I mean, to close this down, Will, I'm pretty sure everyone now who's listening or watching will recognize that they are playing or probably have played at some point a variety of different status games. Yeah. But if someone is listening to you, Will, and going, yeah, I'm hearing what you're saying, mate, but I don't know what status game I'm playing. I don't think mm. I am. What would you say to them? Well, I, I think that what, the easy way to identify what status games you're playing is by thinking about your identities. Like, how, how do you identify? Not just as a male or a female, but like hobbies, um, stuff, you know, what do you love? What do you do with, you know, what do you do that you think you're quite good at? Like, that's your status game. And if you can't find anything, then I would say that's a problem because that means that you don't have any, like if you've got, if nothing that you're doing in your life makes you feel of value, if you don't think I'm good at this about anything, that's a problem. And, and that's a problem that you should address because, you know, status is an essential social nutrient. We need it to survive. So yeah, if you, if you can't figure out where your sources of status are, then I would, I would recommend strongly that you, you find some. Really powerful, Will. Well, I, I think you've just done such a phenomenal job with these books. Um, I'm interested as to where you're going next because there, there does seem to be this sort of consistent through line through your work that you keep developing, keep developing, really trying to explore human nature. Who are we? Why do we make the decisions that we do? Why do we act in certain ways? You've written a lot of brilliant books. If you were going to direct people to one to start their will store journey, which book would you encourage them to start with? Um, I mean, probably selfie, I would say. Yeah, you know, selfie, you know, we talk about perfectionism and talk about um, just, just the power of culture to, to, to kind of, to, to, to affect kind of who we are and how we experience ourselves. I think I, I would recommend beginning with selfie. And then from there to the status game. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant reads. Um, we've talked a lot about perfectionism status throughout this conversation. I always love to leave the audience with some practical takeaways if possible that they can think about saying, yeah, I understand the concepts. I get why it's problematic. What is it I can actually do now in my life to start addressing some of this? Do you have any final words of wisdom for people? Yeah, I mean, so playing multiple games has been the big one for me. Um, you know, recognising that um, you're not competing with everybody in the world. So, you know, like that was the big takeaway my wife took from this and she still talks about it now is that, because she's, you know, she's a very successful business person. And she, you know, she, I think she felt that she, for a while that she was competing with everybody else in the world. And then just that understanding that you're not, you're, you're playing a little status game has, has been sort of very liberating. Um, so, uh, so bring it right down, yeah, make it, right it local. Down. Yeah, make it local. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Make it, make it local. Like so, so shop local for foods <laughs> and play local status yeah, games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stop, stop feeling like you're competing with like the king of Thailand and if you know, or whoever it is, because you're not, you know, f focus in. And, and if you feel that you're kind of, you know, lacking in status, then it, it, it then, you know, I think one of the liberating things for me was that was that we always think about money, 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 money. It's money that drives the world. It's money that's the root of all evil. It ain't. 
you know, status is way more important than money. You don't need to be rich to be happy. You don't need to be rich to feel like you're of value. You just need status. And actually, it ain't that hard to come by. Just find something that you're quite good at and you'll get it. Well, you're doing incredible work, changing lives. Thanks for coming on the show, buddy. Uh, thanks for having me, Rogan. I really appreciate it. Really hope you enjoyed that conversation. As always, do think about one thing that you can take away and start applying into your own life. Now, before you go, just wanted to let you know about Friday Five. It's my free weekly email containing five simple ideas to improve your health and happiness. In that email, I share exclusive insights that I do not share anywhere else, including health advice, how to manage your time better, interesting articles or videos that I've been consuming and quotes that have caused me to stop and reflect. And I have to say, in a world of endless emails, it really is delightful that many of you tell me it is one of the only weekly emails that you actively look forward to receiving. So if that sounds like something you would like to receive each and every Friday, you can sign up for free at drchatterjee.com forward slash Friday 5. Now, if you are new to my podcast, you may be interested to know that I have written five books that have been bestsellers all over the world, covering all kinds of different topics, happiness, food, stress, sleep, behavior change, movement, weight loss, and so much more. So please do take a moment to check them out. They are all available as paperbacks, ebooks, and as audiobooks, which I am narrating. If you enjoyed today's episode, it is always appreciated if you can take a moment to share the podcast with your friends and family or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week. And please note that if you want to listen to this show without any adverts at all, that option is now available for a small monthly fee on Apple and on Android. All you have to do is click the link in the episode notes in your podcast app. And always remember, you are the architect of your own health. Making lifestyle changes always worth it, because when you feel better, you live more.